Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much more to say about you, and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Hello. If I haven't met you yet, I am Georgia, and I'm a deacon and staff member here at Citizens. Um, today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, which we've been in for several months. Um, I'm really glad to be exploring this text with you. When I was a kid, every year around Christmas time, I would come across a particular book in our stack of Christmas books that always only came out during that time of year. And every year I was so deeply frustrated by this particular book, yet also really intrigued by it. This was the book... Does anyone remember these types of books? The images in them are called auto-stereograms, and there's always a 3D image within the 2D image. Um, let's just see if we can do one right now. I don't even know if it will work on the screen, but is anyone really good at this and can tell what this is? No? A fish? That's pretty close in that. So it's actually a shark. Um, maybe this is hard to do on the screen, but if anyone is good at it, do you have any, like, pro tips? Relax your eyes. Look at the tip of your nose. I like it. 
Okay, well, we're going to move on. <laughs> I know you're all going to be thinking about this for a while, so that's okay. Um, but yes, if you, um, I guess, well, my parents finally explained it to me one year when I was just really desperate to read The Night Before Christmas in 3D form and to just be in on the magic of the 3D. So some of the tricks are you have to be patient. You have to look a bit behind it, focus your eyes behind it, and you have to trust that something really is there. Sitting with our passage from John 8 today can feel a little bit like I approached the Christmas auto stereogram book as a child. It feels repetitive, but still hard to understand. It can feel not very pleasing to experience at first, but it seems there's more to it. And it's easy to feel confused or frustrated or impatient as we try to pull the meaning from it. But at the end of today's passage, the very last verse, 30, says that Jesus, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. How did they get it? Is it possible for us to get there too? I think so. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful to be here with you this morning and grateful that you are with us. We're grateful that you invited us here, first and foremost, um, and that that is not an accident, that we are here in this room together. We do ask for you to be with us. Unlike an auto stereogram, we um, have the Holy Spirit who is helping us to understand your word. Um, And it's not just up to our own might or our own eye-focusing tricks um, that will help us understand this passage. So we ask that you would help us to be open to what it is that you have to share with us, that you would help us to be patient, and that you would help us to um, join each other in hearing what it is you want to share with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So when Leah read the passage, maybe you noticed some tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, but I'm going to read it again, and I invite you to pay attention to particularly the tone of the text It's very charged. Let yourself feel the heat and see how animated both the Pharisees and Jesus are. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to them, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, 
will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have so much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Do you hear the confusion, the insecurity, the resentment, the suspicion from the Pharisees? And though Jesus is self-assured in his tone, he is still passionate and emphatic. Throughout John, we've seen the Pharisees become pretty professional antagonists of Jesus. In the past, we've heard them complain about him to each other, plot against him to themselves, even talk about him to others, but behind Jesus' back. But here, there's a direct confrontation. They say, your testimony is not true. Where is your father? Who are you? All along, the Pharisees have been trying to discount Jesus and his words, but it seems they are now just really frustrated and maybe almost childish. Confused by the auto-stereogram Jesus, they would rather just him be in 2D. It's clear they feel threatened by his very present 3D reality that's in their faces but still hidden from them. And since they can't understand Jesus, they get angry with him and they dismiss him. Aren't we this way with Jesus sometimes too? Not childlike, but childish. When we hear his words that seem harsh to us, when he asks us to trust him when things feel awful, and we can't understand why he won't just make everything better in an instant, we flail, we run away and hide, we decide that he can't be as good as he claims. How are we childish right now? What aspects of the character of Jesus, what parts of his word, what truths of his gospel make you feel stuck? What are you trying to evade or throwing a bit of a temper tantrum about? For me, it's aspects of Jesus or his words that feel contradictory, things that don't quickly make sense to me, things that I get easily frustrated by. And Jesus has answers for us. But maybe the invitation for us, at least for right now, is to just try to take him at his word. There are so many questions that Jesus seems to be asking in this passage. Are you willing to believe me and not die in your sins? Are you willing to follow me and not walk in darkness but have the light of life? Are you willing to know me and know the Father? Are you willing to hear me? as I declare to the world what I have heard from the Father. 
And you don't need to answer those questions right now. Those are big questions. But I do invite us, at least for the next few minutes, to table our anger and suspicion, to come out from hiding, to let Jesus reveal himself without quickly dismissing him if we don't immediately understand him. The Pharisees had so much confusion, insecurity, resentment, suspicion, and you may feel these ways towards Jesus too. But let's just try to set them aside for a bit and just be curious together. I wonder if some of the Pharisees' frustration with Jesus and their seemingly emotional intensity was related to how Jesus revealed what was true about their needs, about their longings, about their brokenness. Jesus points out that they were judging by the flesh, that they were from below and of this world, that they ultimately needed him if they didn't want to die in their sins. And Jesus' very first statement of today's passage in verse 12 is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, apparently, there is darkness, meaning there is a lack of light. There is a need for light. The Pharisees take offense to Jesus' statement. But they would have been familiar with the light and dark imagery of their own scriptures. One commentator, D.A. Carson, says, The light metaphor is steeped in Old Testament allusions. The glory of the very presence of God in the cloud led the people to the promised land and protected them from those who would destroy them. The Israelites were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The word of God, the law of God, is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. Israel's prophet Isaiah wrote, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. And Isaiah also prophesied about a savior that would give a way out of the darkness. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So why are the Pharisees surprised at Jesus' claims to being the light of the world? Wasn't language about light familiar to them? Hadn't they been waiting for a light to dawn? But light can feel threatening. Imagine with me a wedding reception that you've been to where the dancing was phenomenal. The music is perfectly curated and propels you back to high school or college or your best upbeat music days. You're singing along to favorite bops with your friends. You may not have a rhythmic bone in your body but you're still grooving to your heart's content as the music pulses out through your sweaty skin. What's the lighting like? I can almost guarantee that it was not bright in the scene you just imagined. For a lot of us, there is something so deeply satisfying about dancing in darkness with our friends under the cover and safety of low lighting, right? But if someone turns on the lights, it's a party foul. It kills the vibe. Why? 
because as much as I think my dance moves are pretty cool, they really aren't. And if I were to do any of my cool dance moves right now, I would embarrass myself. Maybe this is how the Pharisees felt, that they were just doing their thing, thinking they were so cool and had it all together, and then Jesus bursts in and shines a spotlight. It's awkward, it's frustrating, it's a little embarrassing. And they feel exposed, they feel indignant, they feel angry. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, John writes, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus isn't just a light, but also a judge. And we see this in today's passage too. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. That's a little confusing. I don't judge, but even if I do. But it's similar to what John is saying in chapter 12 uh, and also in chapter 3. We've heard John 3.16 many times, but maybe the verses that follow it are not as familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The ancient theologian St. Augustine helps sort out some of the confusion. He says, Judgment was not the purpose of the Lord's coming, nor was it his active practice, but judgment resulted from his presence. Put another way by Carson, Jesus means rather that he does not judge anyone at all the way his opponents do. He does not appeal to superficial, fleshy criteria and accordingly mark people up or down. If that is what his opponents mean by judging, Jesus does not do any of it. But that does not mean that Jesus does not judge in any sense. His purpose was to save, not to condemn. But his very presence guarantees that humanity divides around him, and a large part of it is correspondingly judged by him. Jesus, the illuminating judge, is trying to convey goodness and hope and love when he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
But with all of this talk about judgment, maybe the suspicion that you put on the table a bit ago has come back in full force. Our society is both quick to judge, yet so afraid of judgment. But Jesus seems to say we actually do need a judge, but not a judge that is only human, not a judge that is fallible, not a judge that is swayed by politics or self-interest. We need a judge that we can totally trust. If Jesus is offering himself as the ultimate judge, why is he trustworthy? He tells us here in this passage. The Pharisees claim that Jesus only bears witness about himself. And Jesus plays along a little bit, saying, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. But why is Jesus really trustworthy? From verse 26. The Father who sent Jesus is true, and Jesus declares to the world what he heard from the Father. The commentator Frederick Dale Bruner says, Jesus, John's gospel is claiming, is convinced that whenever Jesus speaks, the Father Spirit speaks a second word as well, a seconding witness, so that Jesus' self-claims are never alone and are never just self-claims. Jesus now reminds his hearers, so yes, I am giving testimony to myself, and the Father who sent me is giving testimony as well. And Jesus goes on to say in the last few verses of today's passage, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Edward Clink, another commentator, says, the statement, I am not alone, expresses in one statement the entire philosophy of Jesus's ministry. The activity of the Son is defined by his relation to the Father, just as the activity of the Father is made known by his relation to the Son. And it is out of this mysterious and glorious relation that the love of God is bestowed upon the world. This union with the Father, purpose from the Father, intimacy with the Father, is so important for who Jesus is. But somewhere hidden in our John 8 passage is a curious phrase that Jesus repeats several times. In verse 24, he says, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And in verse 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Did you hear the phrase? I am he, Jesus says. So yes, Jesus is totally dependent on the Father. And his witness and personhood are rooted in the Father. But his self-witness is also totally true. Why? Maybe you hear the hint in I am he of God's statement to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when God says, I am who I am. But even later in Isaiah, we hear the same exact phrase of I am he. God, or Yahweh, says, Who has performed undone this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And even in your old age, I am he. 
And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. And three other times in Isaiah we hear, I am he. And in Jesus' perfect imagery, Jesus as light of the world is really about Jesus as I am he. For as Carson explains, the theme of light is not unrelated to the question of truthfulness and of witness. For light cannot but attest to its own presence. Otherwise put, it bears witness to itself, and its source is entirely supportive of that witness. Isn't that true? Light differs from all other realities. It gives evidence to itself. Here, commentator C.H. Dodd's reflection. The specific attribute of light is that while all other things are seen and known by means of light, light is known by itself alone. Light by light is seen. Thus, the real meaning of Jesus' reply is that his claim is self-evidencing like lights. It is the purpose of the whole gospel that the work of Christ is self-evidencing. His works are luminous. This dazzling judge, this I am he, he is everything. Only through Jesus can we see all other truth. Only through him can we know all other good. Only through Jesus can we experience all other realities. He is light. Remember how John began his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says to the Pharisees and to us, Believe that I am he. I am he who saves. I am he who is one with the Father. I am he who has the words of life. Maybe you had a hard time with today's New City Catechism. Understandably. The question of, are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ, is answered with, no. Only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. And we heard the prayer, Sovereign Savior, there is salvation in no one but you, and you save everyone who calls upon your name. Jesus is not only the trustworthy judge, but our perfect Savior. He not only decides between life and death, he is life itself. Jesus says later in John 14, 6, No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, this is good news for all of us, even though it's hard to hear. Bruner shares that Jesus is not just a light in the world, but the light of the world. He announces his domain as no less extensive than the cosmos. Jesus is not a parochial Lord. He's not limited to a certain people group or location. Jesus is not only the light of the world, a missionary claim. He is the light of the real life in the world, an existential claim. The deepest longing of every being is to live. 
and to live in the fullest and most authentic way possible. Jesus now promises to give the wisdom, the light, to live this real life. I want real life. Don't you? In John, Jesus has given us so many I am statements to help us understand him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and life. But ultimately, the deepest truth is that Jesus is I am. The Pharisees are still struggling. They seem to say, all we have is your word about yourself. We need more than this to go on. And maybe you're having a hard time locating Jesus too. I am he can, sounds, can sound pretty ethereal. But listening to what Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 25, right after they, in final confusion and frustration, just ask him straight up, who are you? And maybe in an even more confusing phrase than just I am he, Jesus answers them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Or as other versions say, I am exactly what I am telling you. Bruner explains the scene. Finally, the most sought-after question in the gospel. Jesus, who are you anyway? And Jesus' reply, notoriously difficult to translate, but in most cases something like the following, exactly what I am telling you. In short, my teaching is my person. My words are my identity. Jesus is present exactly, entirely, and satisfactorily in the words he has spoken. The only access to the historical Jesus, who is the incarnate Son of God, is through his sentences and remarks. If we want to know Jesus, we will come to his words. I will admit, Jesus' words can be hard to stomach. A few chapters ago in John 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And John says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And John says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asked us to discover him in his words, to believe that he is the word. But there's one more place at the end of today's passage where Jesus wants us to find him. Let's read verse 28. When you have lifted up 
the Son of Man. Then you will know that I am he. Jesus is now talking about himself on the cross, communicating with such irony. The very folks he's speaking to in this passage are the ones who hung him on the cross. Seeing him hanging there on the cross, will these people finally believe that Jesus is he? Bruner shares that the cross will be God's greatest single meeting place with the human race, his one great hour of sharing. There, the Gospel of John dares to assert, in this strange hoisting, God has made himself most accessible to the world. What is God like? Look there. How much does God love the world? Look there on the cross. How can I come to know him? Look there. In the cruelty and humiliation of crucifixion, the holy judge himself, Jesus, bears all of our sin and death. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus is resurrected. And then the Son of Man is lifted up again, this time in full glory and majesty, ascending into heaven, joining his Father, and being exalted as the most holy being. And he invites us to follow him, to join him in this laying down of self and being raised up by him. Though Jesus says to the Pharisees in our passage today, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Just a few chapters later in John 15, 19, we hear Jesus say to his followers, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Will we hear Jesus's invitation? Will we let him choose us out of the world? Will we say yes to him? Believe me and don't die in your sins. Follow me and don't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Know me and know the Father. Hear me as I declare to the world what I have heard from the Father. If our answer is yes, then how? How do we believe Jesus? How do we follow him? How do we know him? How do we hear him? Though Jesus' words were challenging to hear, verse 30 says that many believed in him. But how? Jesus tells us in the next verse, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. This abiding requires embodied faith, communal rhythms, and a constant returning to the person of Jesus and to his words. Every Christmas Eve of my childhood, I would go to a Moravian church in Greensboro, North Carolina, with my extended family. The Moravian Church is one of the oldest Protestant denominations in Christianity, dating back even prior to Martin Luther's Reformation. Some European Moravians ended up settling along the east coast of the U.S. in the 1700s and started a tradition called a love feast in 1727. It's this simple yet special service that my family would go to every Christmas Eve. It's mainly just an hour of singing Christmas hymns together, enjoying a homemade bun and sweet coffee. 
Folks in the church make candles out of beeswax, representing the purity of Christ, and make a red wrapping for the candle, representing the blood of Christ. And at every Christmas love feast, it's the tradition of the Moravians to sing a certain song called Morning Star, O Cheering Sight. A child usually leads the song, and today maybe it's an invitation to us to leave back our childish dismissal of Jesus and our anger with him and receive Jesus with childlikeness. May we let Jesus reveal our need for him and bring his light to our darkness. To me, the candle touching, the light seeing, the word singing, it all feels like a truly beautiful and embodied way to express that I want to follow Jesus as light of the world, to receive Jesus as I am he, to hear his words and believe and declare that he is the word. On the last verse of this song, it's a Moravian tradition to hold up your lit candle. And as we do, may we remember Christ lifted high, his blood shed on the cross as our savior, and his final exaltation as our Lord. We'll just read the words of the song rather than sing them, but it is a call and response song. And so please join me in reading the underlined portions. Morning star, O cheering sight, ere thou camest, how dark earth's night. Morning star, O cheering sight, ere thou camest, how dark earth's night. Jesus mine, in me shine, in me shine, Jesus mine, fill my heart with light divine. Morning star, thy glory bright, far excels the sun's clear light. Morning star, thy glory bright, far excels the sun's clear light. Jesus be constantly, constantly Jesus be more than thousand suns to me. Thy glad beams, thou morning star, cheer the nations near and far. Thy glad beams, thou morning star, cheer the nations near and far. Thee we own, Lord alone. Lord alone, thee we own. Our dear Savior, God's dear Son. You can lift your candle with me. Morning star, my soul's true light, tarry not, dispel my night. Star, my soul's true light, tarry not, dispel my night. Jesus mine, in me shine. Me shine, Jesus mine. Fill my heart with light divine. Hear this good news, friends. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You can blow out your candle. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so glad that you are the light of the world. We need your light. We recognize with your help that we live 
in a dark world, maybe that's even really easy to see. And we recognize that we are dark in ourselves, that there's darkness within us, that we can't save by our own methods, that we need your help in um, bringing light to. So we ask this morning that you would reveal those dark places in our hearts, that as we come to the communion table, that you would lead us into confession, not um, out of shame or condemnation, but that your light would be good news to us, and that we would come with childlikeness, we would set aside our childishness, our anger, our dismissal of you, and that we would allow you to be the light of the world, and that we would believe that you are he, that you are the word, the good news for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.